Uh, Let me uh, lead us briefly in prayer as we consider uh, God's word to us from Micah 6. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for your word. I pray that as we hear it this morning, uh, you'd open our hearts and minds, that we would receive it with gladness and joy, uh, that it would uh, penetrate our hearts to make us more like your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. A famous Presbyterian theologian named Francis Schaeffer was especially gifted in explaining and defending the gospel. He understood uh, that the Western world in the second half of the the 20th century was fast becoming what he would have called a post-Christian world. And since his death in 1984, he's continually been proven right. Now, once upon a time, uh, Francis Schaeffer was being interviewed and the interviewer said to him, uh, Mr Schaeffer, if you had just one hour to explain the gospel to someone, one hour to talk with someone about Jesus, uh, what would you say? And Schaefer's response, which I'm going to put up on the, the screens, is this. He goes, I said over and over, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma, that he is morally dead. Then I'd take 10 to 15 minutes to preach the gospel. I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we are too anxious to get to the answer without having a man realise the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt and not just psychological guilt feelings in the presence of God. Now, when you consider... The proportion of scripture, of all the Bible that deals with the human condition, fallen human, uh, sinful, uh, sinful humanity, and the proportion of scripture that talks about God as a holy God who therefore will judge and will condemn and will pour out his wrath upon sin. And when you consider that proportion in relation to the love and mercy of God revealed fully in the saving news of Jesus then you see what Schaefer says is actually very true. It's a basic reflection of what the Bible teaches. And my question is, why is that? Why is that the case? Why did God, in his infinite wisdom and goodness and love, as he progressively revealed himself uh, through the revelation of Scripture, why did he spend so much time talking about the fallen nature of humanity and about his coming wrath and judgment. That it is in the Bible, I totally get. But that it is so often and so continually in the Bible, why is that the case? Well, it's true we need to hear it again and again, and humanity has this tendency to always uh, talk ourselves up, think of ourselves better than we ought and, and, and the Bible needs to put us in place. But I don't think that's the ultimate answer. However, what the prophet Micah writes here in chapter 6, I think puts us on the trajectory that does lead us to the right answer. I'm not going to say what it is now because it's been a big night, I want you to concentrate. But let's get into it. If you're a note taker, uh, you'll notice there's a sermon outline that you'll receive as you came in. We're at point one. And in this section of Micah's prophecy, what we're seeing is basically a court case. It's a court case between God and his people Israel. 
Now, we need to remember that as a nation, Israel had agreed to what we call a covenant. Now, covenant is more than simply a legally binding contract. It's not less than that, but it's more. See, God gave Israel his laws and his decrees, and he invited them to become his special people. Their national response was, yes, all this we will do. We want you to be our God, we're going to be your people. It's a little bit like a marriage. Uh, In a marriage, there's a legally binding contract, and that is necessary for the marriage. But the marriage is more than just the legally binding contract. It's a relationship. And that contract sort of becomes a defining part of the relationship. That's what a covenant is kind of like between God and Israel. Yet time and time again, Israel broke the covenant. So here we see the court case with Israel on trial. And so we read verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Now, we get that there's a court case, there's the charge, there's the accusation, but what are the mountains doing in here? Why is he speaking to the mountains? Well, the mountains are described in verse 2 as everlasting foundations of the earth. So I think figuratively speaking, it makes sense to address them as the witnesses in the court. You see, it's as if God is saying, let's make this totally fair. The witnesses for this case need to be the kind of witnesses that have been around for ages. So they're very wise. And of course, in the ancient mind, the thing that's always been around is the mountains. So God says, I'll ask the mountains and the hills because they've been around forever. We're going to have a very, very fair trial. Because we've got these ancient witnesses who are very wise. And that shows you that God is really concerned for fairness when it comes to justice. So now we have the witnesses established. And we're operating on the grounds of fairness. We should expect to hear the charge. What's the first charge in this court scene? But we don't get that. We don't get the first complaint about how Israel broke the covenant. Instead, we get something that's really personal. Verse 3, my people, God addresses them. What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. That's what he wants the answer to. We actually should be really amazed by that opening. You see, God, apart from being a party to the covenant... He's also the judge of the whole earth. He made the world and he has the right to judge the world. But here he doesn't operate as the judge. He doesn't even operate really as the plaintiff. Before bringing any charge, the first thing God does is he shows that he is personally affected. He's personally wounded by Israel's unfaithfulness. God is grieved at the sin of his people. And he sounds more like a parent who's mourning the horrible behaviour of his child. And that, I think, shows us that 
For God, justice is more than formal proceedings. It's personal because he loves his people and he is hurt by their sinfulness. And that hurt is very justified because in the next section we see that all throughout their history, God has been backing his people. He has been very much for his people. He has sought their absolute good. So he says, verse 4, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted against Balaam and son of Beor, uh, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. I'll spend just a minute on this. I think you'll get the point pretty, pretty easily. In Egypt, they were enslaved and mistreated by Pharaoh and, 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 and Pharaoh and his army sought to destroy them. But God parted the waters of the Red Sea and he drowned the Egyptian army. God saved his people or he redeemed his people from out of Egypt. A little bit later on, Balak tried to destroy Israel, but God used the dodgy prophet Balaam to speak against Balak and ensured Israel's safety. God protected his now saved people on their journey. And if you follow Israel's journey, uh, journey from uh, Shittim to Gilgal in Joshua chapters 3 and 4, God brings Israel into the promised land through the miraculous parting of the Jordan River under the leadership of Joshua. God delivered Israel into the promised land as he said he would. This is God's history with Israel. The kind of thing he does, he saves, he protects, he delivers. You put this all together and the picture you get is the God who saves, protects and delivers. And that's exactly what he had promised to do. And so when you look at all the activities of God in Israel's history, you're seeing God keeping his promises. In other words, you're seeing the righteous acts of the Lord. So there's God's side of the court case. He has only ever been good and faithful to his covenant people and he is grieved personally at their ongoing rejection of him. But what about Israel's side? That's the next thing we rightly expect. Well, sadly, the picture we're given is of an Israel that doesn't care about the personal relationship with God. We get an Israel that insults God by going the route of bribery. Their response has been distant and corrupt. And so what happens here is that God gives his impression of how his people have been. And it's an extremely negative impression. In the eyes of God, he, he, he caricatures from his perspective what the people of Israel look like. So verse 6, here's what they look like. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now I know that when we read this, 
we think of it as a praiseworthy expression of being concerned to know how to please God and then discovering that it's not about outward sacrifice but about the inward issue of the heart. The song that we sometimes sing called the Micah song takes this approach. But that's not at all what we're seeing here. What we're actually seeing here is a picture of unbelievable insult to God. It's not Micah who suddenly intervenes in the court case and starts talking about how he could stand appropriately before God. It's God painting a very negative picture of a false worshipper. And no, that's just not my weird idiosyncratic understanding. Listen as I read out a paragraph from a commentary on this passage that three reputable Bible scholars have put their names to. It says this. In a series of parallel lines, each beginning with a question, a representative worshipper seeks to establish the price that will win God's favour by raising the bid even higher. One-year-old calves, already more costly. Thousands of rams, myriads of torrents of oil, or the highest price of all, the cruel sacrifice of a child, he can bid no higher. Outwardly, he appears spiritual as he bows before the Most High with gift in hand, but his insulting questions betray a desperately wicked heart. Blinded to God's goodness and character, he reasons within his own depraved frame of reference. He need not change. God must change. He compounds his sin of refusing to repent by suggesting that God, like man, can be bought. His willingness to raise the price does not reflect his generosity, but veils a complaint that God demands too much. The reverse side of his bargaining is that he hopes to buy God off as cheaply as possible. What effrontery to such a mighty and gracious God. And that insult is especially bad because they already know full well what God requires of them. This is even more damning. Verse 8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and love mercy. Walk humbly with God. You know this stuff. This is part of the covenant. And even though you know it, you're still saying what you're saying in the verse before. So this false worshipper, this caricature of what Israel are like. The false worshipper was asking the questions even though he, she already knew the correct answer. And that means that the questions are a deliberate insult to God. No wonder God was saying, what have I done to deserve such treatment? And I think that makes a lot of sense to us. I know. It's often the case that deep down, uh, people know that what they're thinking or planning or doing is actually something that dishonours or grieves God. See, much of the time, not all of the time, but much of the time when someone is grieving God, they know that that's what they're doing. But to look for a loophole, to keep asking the questions about what's right really and what really isn't right. It's all part of the self-deception game and we all do it. If there is something in your life right now that you just know is grieving God, 
Stop trying to make the line blurry. Stop trying to convince yourself that it's not so bad. Stop asking the questions that are designed to stop you facing up to the reality. Repent, repent, repent. It just feels so much better to go through even the pain and humiliation of repentance than to continue with a troubled conscience that drains your emotional energy as you try to justify the sin that you're holding on to. And even worse than that, eventually the energy runs out. And so then what you do is you sear your conscience. Make it numb so that it loses its sensitivity or the sin loses its potency. And once you've thoroughly convinced yourself that what you're doing is really no longer sinful, well, in the end, you're no longer walking with Jesus. Thankfully, God loves his people. So he doesn't let them sweep the sin under the rug. On account of his perfect holiness and righteousness, God must and does punish sin, even though he is reluctant to do that. And if you've got any sense, you'll accept that God is a God of justice who will punish sin. That's what we see the next verse. Verse 9, listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod. That's the disciplining rod. Heed that rod and the one who appointed it. I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. One of the the most helpful things about this series, looking at the book of Micah, is that we're constantly warned of the very real danger of ignoring human depravity and the right response of a holy God, which is to punish sin. You see, it's so easy to find churches, even huge churches, that put on wonderful services or even conferences that ultimately teach people the man-centred gospel where God is working to make you a better you and where you hardly hear a thing about sin and judgment and what Jesus actually came to do. But people are not only ever victims, we are perpetrators and a holy and righteous God can and will punish sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be holy and righteous. That's how the reasoning goes in the next verse. Look at verse 10. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short ether, which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, uh, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. And because God is perfectly holy and righteous, the punishment will always fit the crime. The rich people have oppressed the poor by using dodgy scales and measures when trading, so their punishment is that they're going to suffer the very kind of thing that they've made others to suffer. Verse 14, you will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save I'll give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. And then comes the final nail in the coffin. And this is an absolute killer. I don't know if you noticed it when it was read out. I think here God is speaking primarily to the southern tribes of Israel, to Judah. But he says that they have become as bad as the northern tribes. 
by adopting all the false gods and false religious practices of two of Israel's worst ever kings. Verse 16, you have observed the statutes of Omri and the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. Think of the most hated kings in, in Judah. And they, these guys were, had died 100 years before Micah was writing this. They had a reputation of being absolute nasty pieces of work. God says, you're just like them. By this measure... Israel have truly violated the covenant. And God is therefore not only morally, but actually legally obligated to punish them. They're the terms of the covenant that they agreed to. God is personally grieved at sin. He doesn't take sadistic pleasure in the punishment of sinners. Yet he is holy. And the terms of the covenant with Israel reflect his character. He is the righteous God who rightly pours out his wrath upon sinners. But it's right here in the midst of judgment that we get a glimpse at the heart of God. And we see that he has something that you might go so far as to call a personal dilemma. See, now we're getting to why I think there's so much of judgment in the Bible. You see the heart of God and you see something that I don't know what better word to use that that causes a dilemma for God. See, all throughout this passage, the tone he has used has conveyed a sense of reluctance. He says, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? And when he rightly declares that he's going to punish Israel for their sin, even then he implies that he's held off for a long time. Look again at verse 10. He says, am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasure? I've been holding off, but... I'm like, I can't do it anymore. I, I, I'm reluctant to, to pour out my wrath. God reveals that his personal dilemma is that whilst he must and will punish sin, he takes no pleasure in the death of a sinner. So is there some way that God can both uphold his perfect standard of justice and yet somehow maintain his relationship with sinful people. Can he be a truly holy and righteous God, and yet somehow not count a person's sin against them? Is this blessing of Romans 4.8, for example, actually possible? Well, of course, the good news is that it is. It is possible. It is possible for all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible teaches us that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. This means that the real punishment of, uh, for sin, the real punishment of death and separation from God was in fact executed upon all sinners, which is everyone, but that Jesus, as a perfect human representative and as a perfect human substitute, received that punishment for us. 
He bore the wrath of God in our place. God was most certainly, most truly punishing sinful humanity and therefore was in fact vindicating himself as being completely holy and righteous. That's why the very next words from this section of the Bible says, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God had held off punishing sin, and so that puts his reputation at risk. A holy and righteous God will have nothing to do with sin. He must punish it. But in the death of Jesus, God vindicates himself as the holy God who has indeed punished the sin of sinful humanity. So he has demonstrated his righteousness at the present time, but he has done it in such a way that he can be both just and also the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In Micah 6, we see the heart of God in judgment. And as God over time came to give the fullest expression of his justice and mercy, we've now been able to understand that in the gospel, God has made a way for ungodly sinners like us to be declared righteous and innocent in his sight. God reveals himself to be a just God who justifies the ungodly. What a wonderful vision of the heart of God that we see in Scripture that I think Micah 6 has put us on the the trajectory to. Now, the rubber hits the road for us in a couple of ways when we see this about God. It shows us, implication number one, that sin grieves God. He's a personal God, and therefore sin is a personal affront and offence to him. It's not just breaking a law. Breaking a law seems like a, sort of like a technical thing. You, you, you've done something that a piece of writing says you shouldn't. No, no, no. Sin is actually offending the one who made the law. It's saying, no, God, my relationship with you is, is, doesn't matter to me at this point. It's a personal thing. And that's a really important uh, thing to understand because uh, you hear people say, oh, well, you know, if Christ died, paid for all my sin, well, then does it matter if I keep it? Of course it does. He brought you into a relationship with God. You care about your relationship with your child or your spouse or whatever to not do wrong by them. Well, how much more the God of the universe who has given his one and only son and who is grieved and offended at your sin? When you're tempted to sin, don't think what is the letter of the law in this case. Think what does God think about this. That's a helpful way to think it because it can grieve him when you do it. Secondly, this is very positive, God is most definitely for us like he was for his people Israel. How do you know? Well, he didn't even spare his only son Jesus for our sake. You can't get much for us than that. And that's wonderful to know because there are times in, in, in the Christian walk where you will have to make a hard kind of repentance and it might be shaming and it might be embarrassing to repent of something. And it's so comforting to know that even through that, God is backing you. He says, 
this is the right way to go. I promise you this is going to make things better. I'm with you. Repent from this thing, no matter how hard it is. Trust me that what I've told you to do is right. I'm with you. You're not repenting by yourself. You're repenting and God's there going, yes, this is awesome. I'm going to work with you through this. That's why God is for us. And of course, lastly, the whole picture that we've seen relies rightly upon acknowledging the holiness of God, the otherness of God. You see, I, I think I do this a lot as a confession. I think a lot of people do it a lot. We, we sort of, it's easy to drift into thinking about our relationship with God sort of from our end and from our perspective, you know, what's right for me to do. The character of God to be contemplated isn't always something that sort of happens, I suppose, mentally or emotionally for me. But it ought to be. When you contemplate the character of God, especially his holiness, that he is righteous, and yet that his heart clearly has been uh, to, to love the sinful people. I think that's actually the... That's, that's what it is to look upward in the Christian life. I think it's to say, how am I going with this, that and the other? Well, start by thinking about God and his person and his character. You see it sometimes when, uh, when godly saints, often older people, uh, lead in prayer. I see it often, they, they sort of... God, you are holy. God, you are the creator. It sort of starts with, with uh, orienting the heart toward the character of God. That's a wonderful expression of Christian maturity. As you read scripture, ask yourself the question, what does this teach me about the character of God and the holiness of God? Ask that question before you say, what does this, how does this apply to me? Let me uh, conclude by leading us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the prophet Micah, that by your spirit you spoke through him and that you revealed uh, that you are a holy and righteous God who can and does punish sin, who can and does pour out your wrath against sin. But we thank you so much that we see your reluctance and that leads us to the cross uh, where ultimately you poured out all wrath against all sin onto the willing uh, a sacrif uh, sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, that he willingly bore our sin and your wrath for it in his body on the cross, and that you did that out of an incredible, amazing and unfathomable love for ungodly sinners like us. Thank you, Father, that in your righteousness you've uh, vindicated yourself and you've allowed us to be justified. Father, may we keep lifting our eyes onto you uh, when life gets tricky or when we need to repent of things, let us not look to ourselves and to see what we can do in our own strength, but look to you and the wonderful knowledge that you are indeed for us, that you didn't spare your son but gave him up for us, uh, and that your character is of complete holiness and righteousness. And may that sustain us in our Christian walk. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.